So we're getting started on the sound of theory. Um, and this is, um, just want to show you um, a few images um, of um, Faulkner's Oxford, um, Oxford, Mississippi. Um, so this is Rowan Oak, um, Faulkner's house. And um, this is actually the old um, Faulkner um, family house. Um, and you notice that um, actually quite a few American authors changed the spelling of the name. So Hawthorne um, used to be H-A-T-H-O-R-N-E, so um, the W is an added on. And likewise, Faulkner used to be spelled F-A-L-K-N-E-R. Um, so it's just an interesting fact. But this is the Trek Doyle um, Faulkner House um, and 1904. And the little boy on the pony, that's actually Faulkner right there. Um, so um, this is um, his stature um, in the courthouse square in Oxford. Um, and keep that, this square in mind, uh, because in fact, it would come back at the very end of the Sound of Fury. Uh, the Confederate monument um, in that square is very important uh, to the plot of the Sound of Fury. So just a landmark, you know, I mean, it is the most important place in Ox the central square in Oxford, so it's very important and Faulkner is sitting right there. Um, and this is uh, an image of him at work, and you see that he's, he was a very bookish author, um, you know, surrounded by books as he, um, as, as, as he wrote. Um, and so we have to keep in mind that authors are also um, readers as well, and uh, what they read uh, make a difference to how they write. So uh, both um, a creator of his own writings but also a reader of other people's writings. Um, and this is the mythic Yonepatafa uh, <laughs> County. Yonepatafa County, I get always in trouble saying this. Um, and it's met by Faulkner himself. Uh, and it's um, obviously completely made up, but very much based on uh, 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 Oxford. And this is uh, Jefferson. Uh, Mississippi um, in Faulkner's works. So um, it's, it's just a really interesting fact of Faulkner's writings um, that he should create not just a mythology, but also a whole landscape that goes with that. Um, and talking about Faulkner as um, a, a reader, not just an author, but also a reader, um, uh, Sound of Fury, the phrase is taken from Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5, um, and it turns out that there's another phrase that's also very important to him as well. So tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, lives but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So the title of the novel um, is taken from the phrase sound and fury, but today's Benji section is obviously the tale told by an idiot, and that's really the challenge that Faulkner um, takes upon himself, is to use mental retardation as a constraint on uh, narration 
um, and to take up the challenge that comes from that constraint. So, um, and here um, I want to read you two accounts of Faulkner's um, own description of how the sound of the theory began. Um, and one is much less precise um, than the other. And I'll say a little bit about your uh, upcoming paper in that context. But first, uh, let's look at the two accounts um, that Faulkner himself offers. Um, that began as a short story. It was a story without plot of some children being sent away from the house during the grandmother's funeral. They were too young to be told what was going on, and they saw things only incidentally to the childish games they were playing. So, you know, this is a fine um, description. It's, it's an okay summary of the sound of fury. It's about children at the beginning of the sound of fury uh, being sent away from the house, but there's kind of strange centrality given to the grandmother's funeral. Um, and not being able to figure out um, what um, was going on. Um, that is not, not in there. It is very much in there in The Sound of Fury. Um, but our experience of reading Benji's section um, isn't really revolving around that particular event. So Faulkner obviously has moved away from that initial account. right? So let's look at his second account, much more precise, much closer to what we actually see in the Benji section. And then the idea struck me to see how much more I could have got out of the idea of the blind self-centeredness of innocence typified by children if one of those children had been truly innocent, that is, an idiot. So the idiot was born, and then I became interested in the relationship of the idiot to the world that he was in, but would never be able to cope with. And just where could he get the tenderness, the help, to shield him in his innocence? I mean, innocence in the sense that God has stricken him blind at birth, that is, mindless at birth. So I'll come back to this particular very precise, very, very good summary. Um, of the Benji section. But I just want to stop for a moment and talk about one strategy to keep in mind um, as you write your papers, because this is a writing uh, WR class. Um, so um, I want to um, emphasize how important it is to know exactly what you're trying to do in the paper. That is the most important thing. Knowing what you want to say is, 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 is just about the most important thing, as important as having something to say. So that's why um, there are two assignments that accompany the first paper. One is the outline in which you name, you itemize, you enumerate all the things that you plan to do in the paper. That's very important. Um, and the other is um, kind of more unusual requirement. Um, it's a cover page. Um, that accompanies your first paper that will both describe what you're trying to do, um, the problems that you run into in the course of writing the paper, um, and what you would do differently if you have more time. So it's recognizing the fact that you guys have constraints on you as well, time constraints. You just have to turn the paper in. But if you had more time, what else would you do? What would you do differently? 
This is to cultivate a self-consciousness about the paper. As the paper, what goes into the paper, what you are free and able to put in the paper at one moment, and what future projects, what future um, versions of the paper you might want to do, um, as well as a recognition of what you are trying to do that you haven't quite succeeded in doing. Okay, So that is as important as well is realizing that you're trying to do something, but you haven't quite done it, but knowing that that's really what you should try to achieve. Um, so that self-awareness of the slight gap between what you set out to do and what you've actually achieved, the self-awareness of that gap is crucial to you on your way to becoming the writer that you want to be. So you know, recognizing writing as a process, um, you can get there maybe you know, three-thirds of the way still another um, third or maybe more than that, maybe you know, three quarters of the way. Um, but you know, you're not completely there. Um, but what else do you need to do in order in your own estimation to get to be exactly where you are? So this is, um, you know, I would just encourage you to give a lot of thought to those two additional requirements of the first writing assignment. But now let's come back to Faulkner um, and his account of um, this very good, very precise account of the sound theory. And we notice a, a, a number of things. Um, first of all, that he's defining idiocy in a very peculiar way, right? He's defining idiocy as the blind self-centeredness of innocence. He's not using the word mental retardation. That's very, very important to keep in mind. It's not necessarily a simple deficiency. Um, it is blind, so you know it has that aspect. It is self-centered, um, and we'll think about what that means uh, for idiocy to be a form of self-centeredness. But also, more than anything else, it is a kind of innocence, um, which is a good word for most of us. So what does it mean for idiocy to be a kind of innocence? We'll think about that. And in fact, the argument that I would like to make is that not only is Benji himself innocent, but innocence is also what he demands from the world. Innocence is the impossible demand that he puts upon the person that he loves the most, Caddy. And it is that impossible demand that Caddy is not able to fulfill in the end. And what Faulkner does about that. So both it is about Caddy being able to supply that requisite, that demanded innocence um, that is coming from from Benji, the demand made upon her, um, not being able to fulfill it finally, and Faulkner actually stepping in um, to um, supply that lack uh, by his narrative experimentation. So um, it's, this is the, what I'll try to show in the course um, of this lecture. But um, I want to contextualize Faulkner um, uh, against a number of thinkers who's also thought about mental retardation, or you know, the various uh, ways of designated that condition. And the most, one of the most important is the philosopher John Locke. Um, and this is what he says um, in a very, very influential, uh, this is one of the most influential texts uh, written in the end of the 17th century, very, very influential in the 18th century and 19th century as well, um, John Locke. Herein seems to lie the difference between idiots and madmen. 
that madmen put wrong ideas together and reason from them, but idiots make very few or no propositions and reason scarce at all. Okay, so we almost recognize something else in what John Locke is describing. Madmen put wrong ideas together and reason from them. Actually, he's describing a lot of the characters in Edgar Allan Poe, right? So we sort of recognize that. Um, but idiots, and this is really a very good description of what Faulkner is trying to create, idiots put very few or no propositions and reason scarce at all. So not being able to put two and two together, not being able to go from point A to point B, that is Benji's problem. So point A and point B are always going to be completely separate, discrete, unconnected dots. He's not able to connect all the dots of the world. Um, so, so it really goes back to John Locke in some sense. Um, and um, in the 19th century, um, the institution called the um, well, I mean, it was called a lunatic asylum. It's not called by that designation now. Uh, mental institution is the word we use. Uh, but when it first started in the mid-19th century, um, it was called a uh, lunatic asylum. And um, this is the one in Jackson, Mississippi. And Jackson, Mississippi is a very resonant and loaded word in Faulkner. Sending someone to Jackson just means sending him to the lunatic asylum, and it comes up in the sound of hearing, it comes up in SLA dying. Um, so this is the large-scale um, housing concentration of the mentally retarded in just one place. And um, as we move on uh, to the early 20th century, um, we're beginning to get a new kind of taxonomy. Um, sciences proceed by way of taxonomy. So we get, get this 1910 taxonomy from the American Association on Mental Deficiency. So you know, we're sort of moving closer and closer to our own time. It's mental deficiency. Um, so there are two, three ways um, to categorize or classify uh, mental deficiency. Um, the most severe form is the word idiot. So you know, actually Faulkner is taking his word from that classification. Idiot is um, development arrested at age two. Imbecile, you know, for us is just <laughs> a word of course, really, you know, that we throw at other people. Um, it actually has a clinical definition, arrested between two and seven. Um, and moron, again, a word that we use without thinking about it, uh, has a clinical definition, arrested between seven and 12. Um, so um, as you, we can see, um, by the early 20th century, um, the scientific thinking about mental retardation uh, was moving more and more towards a quantitative approach, right? You know, so um, we see the numbers right there, age two, ages two to seven, and ages two, seven and 12, um, to quantify, you know, at what's developmental stage um, the, it was arrested, you, mental capacities were arrested, um, and how that would correlate with uh, various degrees of mental retardation. Um, the person who was instrumental, who was probably the most important figure um, in turning a kind of a quantitative approach um, into standard practice uh, was Henry Goddard. Um, and, um, and his quantitative approach um, 
took a number of forms. He was, first of all, he was very important um, as the director of research at the Violent Training School for Feeble-Minded Girls and Boys, one of the first and uh, one of the most important uh, for 12 years, um, 1906 to 1918. And then he, even more important than that, he was actually a pioneer in IQ testing. So the 1908 uh, translation of Binet's intelligence testing, uh, it was invented by a French uh, psychologist, Binet, um, and Goddard translated that from the French uh, and was instrumental in getting it to be widely adopted. So you know, the, what we know as IQ tests really dated from that time, once again, completely quantitative numerical measurement. Um, and then in 1912, he wrote a book um, called The Calicat Family and the Inheritance of Feeble-Mindedness. Um, so this is Goddard's contribution to um, and widely used um, understanding of mental retardation. Um, Faulkner can be seen in many ways as a rejoinder um, and a, maybe a descent, a departure uh, from this quantitative approach. Um, his is very much a non-quantitative approach. Um, the quantitative approach not only emphasizes numerical measurement, but it's very much an objective look at mental retardation from the outside, right? You know, it is people who are not retarded uh, looking at people who are retarded and seeing where they're deficient. So the deficiency index, the numerical index, is a measurement of they are, how deficient they are as defined by people who are not retarded. Um, Faulkner's tale told by an idiot is very much a tale told from inside the mind of an idiot. It is not told by someone from the outside looking at Benji from the outside. It is told from inside the consciousness um, of an idiot with the blind self-centeredness of innocence being front and center. That is the defining um, ground of uh, Benji's world. Um, so what we get is the, sort of the very recognizable modernist technique, stream of consciousness, um, and in this case, allowing for extreme subjectivity. So you know, as opposed to the objectivity of the quantitative approach, this is extreme subjectivity. Um, and we see a number of features uh, associated with this extreme subjectivity. One is, we've seen this before, refresh your memory about this, um, is that the past and the present are juxtaposed, right? So, and we can call it by a different name, and that is nonlinear chronology. Um, we've also seen the primacy of smell, and we'll see um, how that uh, really is the, the, the basis on which Faulkner tells the central story um, in the Benji section. Um, and another interesting feature is the incomplete syntax. I'll talk about all of this. Um, but first, just um, this is a passage that we looked at before. I just want to bring it back. Um, this is very early in the Benji section. Um, juxtaposing uh, two moments um, that might not seem connected uh, to the rest of us, but uh, they are connected in Benji's mind. Did she come to meet Caddy? She said, rubbing my hands. What is it? What are you trying to tell Caddy? Caddy smelled like trees, and like when she says, we were asleep. What are you moaning about, Lester said. You can watch them again when we get to the branch. Here, here's you, a Jimson weed. So, you know, very counterintuitive, um, yoking together of two experiential moments for Benji. 
you came together one episode having to do with his sister Kelly, a young white girl, and the other having to do with Luster, a young black servant. Um, so those two are connected. Benji makes no racial distinction. It's very important to register this fact. No racial distinction in Benji's mind. That might be one way why um, an idiot might not be completely deficient in um, Faulkner's estimation. Um, but in any case, um, he's not making the usual you know, distinction, but he is making instead a connection through the sense of smell, right? So Caddy smelled like trees. Um, Luster doesn't exactly smell like trees, but he's coming up with a good enough substitute, the Jimson wheat. So this is Faulkner's way of substitution. The logic of substitution is also playing out in Faulkner. Um, and Luster is almost good enough. And it's the sense of smell that connects those two moments in Benji's mind. So here, I want to um, bring up another um, psychiatrist, psychologist, um, that you would recognize right away, um, and that in some sense, Faulkner is also um, departing from, and this is Sigmund Freud. Um, and um, in his classic um, on uh, civilization and its discontent, Freud argues that the development of human sexuality um, makes it less and less dependent on the sense of smell. Uh, that the sense of smell becomes um, less and less central to um, the demonstration and the articulation of human sexuality. So this is what Freud says. The development of human sexuality seems most likely to be connected with the diminution of the olfactory stimuli by means of which the menstrual process produces an effect on the male psyche. The role was taken over by visual excitations, which in contrast to the intermittent olfactory stimuli were able to have a permanent effect. So this is, we still recognize the truth of what um, of what Freud is saying, that we don't get, usually we're not attracted to people because of the way they smell. Usually the first thing that gets us is the way they look. Um, so, you know, he's described, I hope I'm not overly generalizing, but I think that's probably true of lots of people, is the first thing that they see is, is how some, the first fact that they register about anyone is how that person looks, not the way they smell. So, I mean, Freud is not, um, not un, you know, this is not untrue. But um, the way that he denigrates the importance of the sense of smell is something that one might take issue with. Um, and it turns out that Faulkner actually is taking issue uh, with that denigration of the sense of smell. Um, the Sound of Fury is obviously about hearing. That's announced in the title um, of the novel. But the sense of smell is actually very important. So what I'd like to do um, today is to use the sense of smell as the index, as the connecting thread through which Faulkner tells a dramatic story. And the dramatic story is obviously Caddy's story told through the eyes of her brother who loves him, 
loves her, but who is completely blind and completely self-centered in his love for Caddy. So the story goes something like this. Um, the innocence, sexual innocence of Caddy is threatened, but is restored. It's precariously restored twice. And then it is threatened yet again, and there's no restoration this time. It is lost. It's gone forever. And that loss does something to Benji, and we see it in the way that his syntax becomes incomplete. And then there's something else that is lost to Benji as well. But Faulkner, knowing that innocence has to be sheltered through acts of tenderness, is able through his narrative to supply that act of tenderness that is not coming anymore from Caddy. So it's a very complicated story. It's actually completely, uh, it makes complete sense actually to me. Um, so in that sense, you know, it, it's Faulkner's an extremely coherent story through complicated um, non-linear chronology of NG section. Um, but it is a story that we have to reconstruct by following one particular phrase that has to do with the census now. So let's go to the first step um, of innocence becoming dangerously uh, in jeopardy, uh, but being restored in the nick of time. Okay. So, um, and Caddy put her arms around me and a shining veil, and I couldn't smell trees anymore, and I began to cry. It's Benji, Caddy said, Benji. She put her arms around me again, and I went away. What is it, Benji? She said, is it this hat? She took her hat off and came again, and I went away. Benji, she said, what is it, Benji? What has Caddy done? I went to the bathroom door. I could hear the water. I listened to the water. I couldn't hear the water. And Caddy opened the door. Why, Benji, she said. She looked at me, and I went and she put her arms around me. Did you find Caddy again, she said. Did you think Caddy had run away? Caddy smelled like trees. Okay, so that is the phrase that is going to be our guide in the reconstruction of the drama that Faulkner is giving us. Um, and we notice right away that Caddy is the supplier of tenderness for a good part of Benji's section, right? Her characteristic gesture is putting her arms around Benji. And we can think of it both in terms of the physical act of putting her arms around Benji, but also wrapping her mind around Benji. Um, someone who's not able to tell her what is wrong, right? So Caddy <coughs> is trying to figure out what it is that is making Benji cry, and we should remember all this time when Benji is crying, he's actually making this incredible noise. Um, it's this bellowing that's just filling up the whole house, unbearable. Um, so, you know, just like um, the noise in Hemingway's Indian camp, this is unbearable noise coming from Benji. So, you know, just to stop that noise, um, Kelly has to figure out what it is that is upsetting. Benji to this extent, and she tries out a number of explanations, right? So is it this hat that I'm wearing that you don't like, you know, that's making you so upset? Wrong answer. 
can you figure, figure, figure out the answer? And it has to do with something that requires going to the bathroom and turning on the faucet. So this is the only thing that Benji is going to tell us, is that Kelly has figured out what it is. She goes to the bathroom, he hears the water running, water runs for a while, can't hear the water anymore. Kelly comes out, everything is okay again. Kelly puts her arm around Benji. Kelly smells like trees. Everything is okay. Innocence has been restored. So what is it that was really upsetting Benji? We find out very soon. Next page, actually. Faulkner actually isn't so um, you know, impossible to read. I mean, you know, this is fairly close um, cluing in what um, exactly uh, was upsetting to Benji. Dilsey, Kelly said, Benji's got a present for you. She stooped down and put the bottle in my hand. Hold it out to Dilsey now. Kelly held my hand and Dilsey took the bottle. Well, I declare, Dilsey said, if my baby ain't give Dilsey a bottle of perfume. Just look here, Roscoe's. Kelly smelled like trees. We don't like perfume ourselves, Kelly said. She smelled like trees. So that is what is upsetting Benji, is the use of perfume, a sign that Kelly is on her way to losing her sexual innocence. Um, and what is really interesting is that on this occasion, Kelly is able to do exactly what is needed, right? She gives away the perfume and she uses the pronoun we. We don't like perfume anymore. This diffusing of herself and Benji, even though really it's Benji who objects to the perfume, uh, in her act of putting her arm both physically and metaphorically around Benji, Kelly uses the more encompassing pronoun we. That is the syntactic equivalent to the physical act of putting her arm around Benji. So this is one moment when we can see this clear danger, but the danger has been averted, innocence has been restored. Let's look at one other moment when that happens again. Um, it was two now, and then one in the swing. Kelly came fast, white in the darkness. Benji, she said, how did you slip out with Virch? She put her arms around me, and I hushed and helped her dress and tried to pull her away. <coughs> Kelly and I ran. We ran up the kitchen steps onto the porch, and Kelly knelt down in the dark and held me. I could hear her and feel her chest. I won't, she said, I won't anymore, ever. Benji, Benji. Then she was crying, and I cried. And we held each other, hush, she said, hush, I won't anymore. So I hushed, and Kelly got up, and we went into the kitchen and turned the light on, and Kelly took the kitchen soap and washed her mouth at the sink hot. Kelly smelled like trees. Once again, that very reliable thread that Faulkner is giving us. So we've just looked at one kind of, of arithmetic in the earlier use of the pronoun we, right? Kelly and Benji being two different people, but being turned into a single unit 
by that first person plural we. The two of them had become one in that earlier moment. Here, this the repetition of that kind of logic, except that it is not Benji who's being fused with Caddy, right? It was two now and then one in the swing. Caddy and her bow in the swing, the two of them becoming one. And it is that sight that is unbearable to Benji. So that's why she's he's crying and Caddy this time doesn't have to guess. She knows exactly what it is that is upsetting Benji so much. So once again, she tries her best to make things okay for Benji again. She puts her arm around Benji um, and then she does what is needed one more time. Um, and it is within her capacity to do what is needed. So she goes to the kitchen, it's not the bathroom, but it's the same, really the equivalent, functional equivalent of the bathroom, um, turns the light on, um, turns on the faucet one more time, right? This necessary ingredient, all those are the necessary ingredients to the restoration of innocence, faucet, soap and water, washing out her mouth so that she once again smells like trees. So um, we can see that Caddy is doing everything that Benji is demanding from her. But I think that we can also see how unreasonable Benji is, right? So let's not romanticize Benji and you know just call him innocent. He is innocent, but this is an innocent that is not only blind to the needs of Caddy. She's going to become a woman. She's not going to be able to wash herself clean every time with soap and water. Um, and Benji simply has no recognition of Caddy as a separate person um, who has her own developmental path. She's going to turn from a young girl to a woman. That's her developmental path. And because Benji is arrested at age two, he wants everybody, or you know, whatever, age two or age four, um, because he's arrested at such an early age, he wants everybody to be developmentally arrested at that age as well, with that degree of innocence. And that Caddy is not able to do for him. So it is a very um, uh, 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 impossible, very self-centered, kind of um, demand that Benji is imposing um, on Caddy, and in that sense, sowing the seed of his own destruction. It is a, a demand that Caddy's can never meet in the long run. Um, it's almost like the impossible demand that Gatsby is putting on Daisy, right? You know, we're beginning to see actually a pattern um, of people who love intensely um, but in the very intensity of the love, putting an impossible demand on the loved object, um, just no human being is capable of meeting that demand. Um, so, not surprisingly, we see um, this time Caddy failing Benji and see what's in this passage and what is not in this passage. We were in a hall. Caddy was still looking at me. Her hand was against her mouth. She stopped again against the wall, looking at me, and I cried. And she went on 
and I came on crying and she rang against the wall looking at me. She opened the door to her room but I pulled at her dress and we went to the bathroom and she stood against the door looking at me. Then she put her arm across her face and I pushed at her crying. So the characteristic gesture coming from Caddy putting her arms around Benji, that is not here in this passage. Instead, she's putting her arm across her own face. And she's doing this because Benji is trying to get her to go to the bathroom, you know, to achieve that that previously tried and you know solution that worked before. Benji thought that it would work one more time. This time that solution isn't going to work. So we see it in the non-appearance of that gesture coming from Caddy, arms around Benji, and she's not able to do that. And we also see the non-appearance of that phrase, Caddy smelled like trees, she doesn't smell like trees anymore, and she never will smell like trees again. So this is uh, Faulkner's way um, of telling um, the story of loss of sexual innocence. Um, completely through the sense of smell and through this very indirect uh, way of uh, channeling it through the mind of someone who's mentally retarded, who can't name that condition, can't really name that loss, uh, but who registers that loss as a sensory loss, right? You know, so he's not able to reason, but his senses tell him what actually has happened. So, you know, this is one way in which Benji actually both knows and not knows. I mean, he knows really in the sense that his reaction says that he knows, but he doesn't know in the sense that he doesn't, can give the reason, can name the condition. Um, so let's look at the consequences of um, that loss on Caddy's part. What happens to Benji when he loses Caddy in this way? And the way Faulkner is telling that story is by this technique of Benji not finishing his sentences. So let's look at this incomplete syntax very um, all the way through um, the Benji section, uh, but especially striking in this moment. They came on, I opened the gate, and they stopped turning. I was trying to say, and I caught her, trying to say, and she screamed, and I was trying to say, and trying. And the bright shapes began to stop, and I tried to get up. I tried to get it off of my face, but the bright shapes were going again. They were going up the hill to where it fell away, and I tried to cry. But when I breathed in, I couldn't breathe out again to cry, and I tried to keep from falling off the hill, and I fell off the hill, into bright, whirling shapes. So it is told as a jumble of sensations. Ah, this is the only way Benji can tell a story. But we can sort of know, you know, roughly what is going on. Um, someone, we, we need more to know that someone had left the gate open. So some schoolgirls were going by, and Benji had lost Caddy at this point. He sees the schoolgirls. He's always looking for substitutes for Caddy, so he grabs one of the schoolgirls. Um, I caught her trying to say, 
And we can almost see that this is what happens to, this is the consequence of what happens to Benji. When this not carried there to complete his sentences for him, right? Caddy putting her arm around Benji is her way of finishing his sentences, saying what he cannot say for himself. She's not there um, to do that for him. So Benji's sentences are left hanging, incomplete, always trying to say uh, without the uh, predicate, without the object, uh, without just the grammatical complement to uh, finishing that sentence. Um, and um, that's just how things are going to be for him forever, um, you know, trying to say something, trying to um, express himself to the world without the resources of language and without the mental capacity to do so. So we also know what happens when, you know, that really, this is the moment when is, uh, Faulkner is actually registering mental deficiency. Something is lacking, something is missing from Benji's world. Um, and something is happening to Benji as well. It right. looks like something is being put on his face. Um, he can't breathe, um, that he is fighting it, but this thing is happening to him. So what is it that's happening to Benji at this moment? Uh, we see the physical manifestation of what's happening to him just a little later. I got undressed and I looked at myself and I began to cry. Hush, dust it said. Looking at looking for them ain't going to do no good. They are gone. Okay, so that is what happens to Benji. Um, you know, I don't think it's you know, I think that we know what happens, you know, that people who are mentally retarded, who are a threat to others, get castrated, it still happens. Um, so um, it is um, a very graphic um, uh, rendition of the loss that comes to Benji when he loses Caddy. But, you know, I would say, even though it's a horrible fate, and, you know, Benji can't really bear to look at himself, so he really has that degree of self-consciousness. Um, but I have to say that it actually shows um, some degree of narrative tenderness on the part of Faulkner. And I really want to emphasize this, because thematically the tenderness is not going to come from Caddy. You know, she's lost that ability. So something else has to supply that tenderness that will shield and shelter Benji. And Faulkner is the one who is doing this. So on the one hand, it is terrible that there should be that loss coming to Benji. But at the same time, that loss once again establishes a bond between Benji and Caddy. They do have something in common, even though Caddy doesn't know it and Benji is the last person to be able to say it, to name that condition. Nonetheless, there is a bond. It's almost as if Caddy has suffered this terrible thing that she's very, you know, that she's devastated by. This is a point in time where, um, you know, to be, um, um, to to have that loss is, is a kind of incredible stigma on 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 Caddy um, that in some sense ruins her life. Um, and Benji's life is also ruined, devastated. Um, in a parallel fashion. 
So the two of them actually do have, women push this point so far, it's really not a consolation to anyone to have that particular thing in common, but this is the symmetry um, that Faulkner is uh, creating, creating for Benji and, 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 and Caddy. Um, we'll look at one other moment, and this is the very end of the Benji section, um, in which we see maybe a more compelling, more um, you know, um, persuasive uh, way in which um, a shelter could be devised for Benji without Caddy being physically there. So this is the very end of the Benji section. And um, I'm telling you <laughs> what I want to say, but uh, obviously we're back to the experimentation um, on the part of Faulkner. But let's just look at this. Um, Father went to the door and looked at us again. Then the dog came back, and he stood black in the door, and then the door turned black again. Kelly held me, and I could hear his awe and the darkness and something I could smell. And I could see the windows where the trees were buzzing. Then the dog began to go in smooth, bright shapes, like it always does, even when Caddy says that I have been asleep. Um, this is coming at the very end of Benji's section when he's 33 and he's back again to being a young boy, right? So this is what the nonlinear finally is revealed to us what the nonlinear chronology is doing for Benji. Being 33 is no place for Benji to be. It's a terrible place. No one wants to, in his condition. Of course, the age when Christ was crucified, you know, obviously that's the reference. Um, so he, Benji is going to be crucified at age 33. And Faulkner doesn't want him, you know, wants that crucifixion to happen and to be registered, but he doesn't want that to be the experiential ending for Benji. So because he's telling the story in a nonlinear fashion, he can choose to end the story at a much earlier point, and he can do that because past and present are always just opposed in Benji's mind anyway, and he can tell the difference between past and present. So at the very end of Benji's section, he actually goes back, there's a bit of time travel for Benji, he gets to go back to a very satisfying moment in time. And let's look at how this moment reconstitutes all those things that are dear to Benji. Um, the dog comes back, the trees are buzzing, so you know, there's this um, sight and sound fuse um, that really is the kind of the defining feature uh, of, of Benji's world. And the no explanation at all, but very reassuring um, visual images. Um, father still alive, uh, black in the door, and then the door turning black, and that's how Benji wants it to be. Wants to be asleep, wants to be in bed with Kelly, holding um, him. And um, he could smell something. What is really interesting is that there's almost no need to mention that Kelly smells like trees, right? And that actually is the best condition. Even that phrase, Caddy smelled like, smelled like trees, already suggests that it's, she's in danger of not smelling like trees, right? Benji needs to mention that Caddy smelled like trees 
when she stopped smelling like trees for a moment. And so even the appearance of that phrase signals that there's already a danger present. And maybe it's been averted, but a danger has been there. Not being able to name that, and she actually also smells mud at that point. Her muddy jaw is her, she's completely muddy from fighting in the water with um, Quentin. So he smells trees, he smells mud. The smell of an innocent young girl, and that is the smell that Benji wants to die smelling. Um, so he gets to smell that. But what is also interesting is that there's a kind of a backward reference to the previous traumatic moment, right? Um, the smooth, bright shapes. If we just go back um, to that horrible, traumatic moment, um, those are the bright, whirling shapes um, that uh, were forced upon Benji at this moment when he's completely helpless, when he's pinned down, down when Caddy is nowhere to be seen. Um, those bright, whirling shapes at this supremely traumatic moment those have been reconstituted as comforting shapes that he just doesn't know why they are there, but he's falling asleep and Caddy is telling him that he's falling asleep. He doesn't even have the word to talk about, describe the condition of being asleep, but it's okay. This is really one moment when not having language is completely okay. And Faulkner has managed to bring Benji back to the point where life actually is bearable and in fact satisfying. Um, he can Falkland can't really do more than that. He can't really bring, you know, true happiness, actual objective happiness. He can't bring objective happiness to Benji at thirty-three. The only way he can bring is subjective satisfaction to Benji at the age thirty-three, acting as if he were much younger and still having Kelly there. So, um, you know, that the narrative experimentation is really completely um, thematically um, consequential as well. Um, and that really is, is, is the story um, that Falkner is telling. So we'll move on next time and to Quentin's section, section two.